October 1957, the Soviets launched the world's first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, worrying American leaders that we were falling behind technologically. In the early 1960s, President Kennedy said the U.S. was in an hour of maximum danger, danger as the Soviets were winning the space race. However, on February 20th, 1962, Friendship's Friendship 7 began its orbit of Earth with U.S. astronaut John Glenn on board, getting America back into the space race at one of the most tense moments of the Cold War and renewing belief in our country's abilities. Good evening and welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program tonight features author, historian, and speechwriter Jeff Shessel, joined in conversation by Chief White House Correspondent for the New York Times, Peter Baker. If you missed our program, our recent program with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, you can find it on our YouTube uh, page. Please check it out. And I was just mentioning to, to Peter that we are in bizarre times when you start to recognize his living room. We're happy to have him back. You can purchase your copy of Jeff's book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War at Interabang Books, our local bookstore partner. Our audience receives a 10% discount from the Interabang Books online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And just remember that you can use that code for any of the books on your online store uh, in your shopping cart, not just Jeff's book. We have a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check out our website at DFW World for newly scheduled events. Now I'd like to welcome Peter Baker to introduce our speaker and moderate tonight's conversation. Peter is the New York Times Chief White House Correspondent. Baker spent 20 years at the Washington Post, including four years as Moscow Bureau Chief in collaboration with his wife, journalist Susan Glasser, and he has authored six award-winning books. Peter, thanks for joining us again. Jeff, we are so excited to have you. Thanks for joining us. And uh, anyway, the floor is yours. Thanks so much. Well, Liz, thank you very much for that kind introduction. And I think your backdrop, your living room looks awesome. I think you've got a terrific uh, backdrop there. So we should be uh, uh, seeing more of that, in fact. Uh, and Jeff, boy, I can't tell you how excited I am to be here with Jeff Cecil tonight. Uh, Jeff knows this story, so I'm going to tell you anyway. Jeff has written the book I wanted to write, and this is, I'm a little jealous, honestly, I am, it's true, because a few years ago, uh, I was thinking about who had not been, uh, you know, subject of a really good biography in a long time, and John Glenn's name came to mind, just because he's such an exciting and fascinating figure in American history, so I started researching a little bit. I went to call people in Ohio where his archives are and talk to them about what was available. I'm getting all excited and I mentioned it to my agent. And the agent says, yeah, that's no good. Jeff Sessel's already doing that book. And I'm like, oh, killer. Because not only was Jeff Sessel doing the book I want to do, he would almost certainly do it better than I was going to do. And it turns out he has. Uh, he has done a fabulous book. We did get to have a nice lunch out of it. Uh, when I found out he was writing, he was very generous and took some time to tell me about it. But the final product here, Mercury Rising, uh, is just a wonderful book. Uh, I read it last year, actually, I guess, in galley form. And it stands, it's, it's, I, I urge everybody to go get it. I'm going to read the quote from Doug Brinkley, the noted um, uh, historian from Texas. He's in Houston. Uh, he writes, it seems like a story 
from a simpler and altogether less jaded time, a time Jeff Cecil captures in Mercury Rising, which brings Glenn's story alive again with both nostalgia and a riveting fast-paced narrative that has movie written all over it. Boy, Jeff, my first question is, how much did you pay Doug Brinkley for that? That's an amazing review. <laughs> I, I can't disclose, uh, but uh, I, <laughs> I am grateful for the review. And, and Peter, I'm, I'm so grateful to you for, for having this conversation here with me. As you noted, it's, it's not our first conversation about, about John Glenn. I guess it's our first public conversation about John Glenn. Um, <clears throat> and while I, I am relieved and excited that I got to write this book, I am disappointed that I didn't get to write the book that, that you would have written about John Glenn. I can only imagine what you would have brought to it. So thank you for joining me. And Liz, uh, thank you and the World Affairs Council of Dallas for, for inviting us to have this conversation tonight. Well, Jeff, is a, as everybody knows, is, a, is the author of a number of other uh, remarkable books that you should also read on LBJ and RFK and their uh, you know, fraught relationship. I think it's called Mutual Contempt. He wrote a fantastic book about the Supreme Court during the FDR era, also uh, worth getting. But this book tonight is, is, is fascinating because it comes at a time when it feels like heroes are missing from our public sphere. And John Glenn still strikes us as, as, a, as a hero. You focused on his space time. Tell us about what you want to do with this book. It's not a full-on biography. You're focusing on mostly his time uh, in, the, in, in the stars, literally, and, and JFK's you know, uh, uh, sponsorship of the program. Tell us what you wanted to do with this book. Well, it, it goes to the, uh, the first point you made, Peter, which is that I, we all know that John Glenn is a hero, but I, I wanted to, to go a little deeper than that and to understand what it was about John Glenn that caused such a, a, an incredible outpouring uh, across the country when he died just a, a little more than four years ago. What was it that we had lost when, when John Glenn passed? What was it about the era that he represented? What was it about the achievements that, that he uh, uh, represented? Uh, and what it was that the nation was able to do, not just John Glenn, but the nation during those early years of the space race. I wanted to understand that. I wanted to understand what it was in 1962 after that flight that Liz described. What was it about this moment, about this flight that brought 4 million New Yorkers out in the freezing cold, weeping, climbing bridges to get a glimpse of, of John Glenn and his motorcade after he had orbited the earth? What was it that was so important about that achievement in that moment? What was it about Glenn uh, that made him the most beloved of the astronauts. Um, was it really just that he was a Boy Scout as the other astronauts referred to him uh, and, it was not, <laughs> and it was not a term of endearment or was there more to John Glenn than that? There certainly was a, a spoiler uh, alert. Um, and I also wanted to understand uh, not just Glenn but the, the times in, in which he was able to accomplish this. Uh, what was it um, that, that John Kennedy was facing? that caused him to convert really at the beginning of his presidency from being reluctant to, uh, to commit the nation to space exploration to a few months later committing it to really the most ambitious and expensive project in the nation's history. So those are some of the questions that I wanted to address in my research and ultimately in the book. We took on the project, as you mentioned, Senator Glenn uh, had already passed away. So we, you weren't able to spend time with him. Tell us what kind of sources you had. Where did, where did you go? Who did you get to talk to? Who's still around? What primary sources were available to you? And what did you learn from it that you didn't really, that surprised you? 
Well, thankfully, John Glenn saved just about everything he ever touched or wrote or that passed across his desk. And I'm not sure that that was the case of any of the other astronauts, but he has got, uh, Peter, as you pointed out, they're in Columbus at Ohio State. He's got an enormous archive and, and not just representing the, the many years that he spent in the United States Senate, but all the years prior to that. And not just NASA, but even his childhood. He's got high school papers that he wrote. He's got an autobiography that he was uh, assigned to write for a class in high school at the age of 18 to imagine what he was going to be someday. At, at that point, he said he wanted to be a research chemist. I guess he didn't want to admit on paper to his teacher that what he really wanted to do was, was fly. That, that goal was um, already sort of deeply embedded for him. But I had access to, to all of those papers and I found uh, all sorts of fascinating stuff that, that had never been published before. And we can talk about some of those things. Uh, I also was very lucky to, to get the chance to interview both of his children, um, Lynn and, and David, who were really very forthcoming about their father. And I interviewed really anyone I could track down who was associated with, with the program. And I, I was very lucky to, to get to know some of the engineers and, and others. Um, uh, there's a gentleman, I, and he, he might actually be joining us tonight. He, he said he might try to, to call in a gentleman named Bob Vos, who actually not only helped to select John Glenn as an astronaut, but actually helped to define the criteria by which they would select astronauts. He was there, he was present at the creation and not just present, but a, but a key participant. And um, Bob uh, and I had many conversations about John Glenn, about the mission and about the times. And I was very lucky to talk to, to a number of, of Bob's colleagues as well. Well, I hope Bob is uh, checked in tonight. And if he is, please, uh, you know, Bob, make yourself known in the Q&A chat, or I guess what's in the chat function, we're asking people to, to put questions. You don't have to have picked John Glenn for the space program to ask a question, though. If you want to put a question in, go ahead. Uh, anybody can put one in the chat, and we'll, we'll get to them as we go along. Um, why do you think, and you sort of allude is why do you think Glenn was different than these other astronauts? Because, in fact, there was this fraught relationship, right? There was kind of a tribal division between them. I mean, Scott Carpenter's wife describes Glenn and Carpenter as glory hound and Tonto, right? And there are two of them don't necessarily get along with the other five. Talk a little bit about that dynamic. It's really fascinating. Well, you know, the other five, so there were, as, as you noted, there were seven Mercury astronauts and the split happened pretty early on um, between five on, on the one side with the, um, the the sort of leader, although the others would not necessarily admit that he was their leader, it was Alan Shepard, who wound up becoming the, the first American to, to fly in space. And the other two, Glenn and, and Carpenter, as you, as you mentioned, were um, uh, more like-minded than they were with the others. The others, the, the majority of the group, these were classic fighter jocks. I mean, you've seen them portrayed in the movies. Um, they were kind of tough talking. They were profane. Um, they weren't interested in kind of pleasing anybody. They were interested in winning. They were interested in flying. They were interested in racing cars fast. And they were interested, frankly, in women who were not their wives. And that was not the case for, for John Glenn and Scott Carpenter. And that was one of the issues that actually emerged between the, the two groups was whether questions like that uh, were at all anybody else's business. The, the five felt very much that what they did in, in what they called their extracurricular hours was up to them. But what John Glenn, who lived by a very different moral code, told them was that they were, whether they liked it or not, they were role models now. 
and they were national symbols. And then if one of them misstepped uh, and it became public, that it was going to be an embarrassment, not just to their families, but to the program and to the nation. And he really does, Glenn, connects with the public in a way that Shepard doesn't, right? Shepard's the first man, first American in space. Glenn is not. Glenn's the third. He's the first orbit. But why? I mean, like, he really does connect it with the public. What do you think that was about? There were another a number of aspects to this. And one is um, that, that Glenn had actually spent some time on the national stage before they became astronauts. Glenn was the only one of the astronauts who had actually been famous in the years prior to the program. He was the only one who had spent any time in, in front of uh, movie reel cameras and television cameras. He had spent weeks actually as a, as a contestant on Name That Tune, the popular program on CBS, um, after he had won fame for setting a speed record flying a jet across the United States from LA to New York in a little over three hours, three hours and 23 minutes. So Glenn had, had, had developed some skills, but he also was born with a lot of these skills. This is just kind of, when you go back to Glenn's childhood as I did and try to describe the world from which he emerged, he was just one of those guys who had those skills, who had those qualities really from the beginning. And he was given this opportunity uh, to, to develop them. So by the time he's introduced to the country and to the world in April, 1959, as part of this first corps of astronauts, he is utterly at ease in front of the, the, the lights and the cameras and the reporters who are cl literally climbing over each other to try to get near the astronauts. And the others all take a step back. They've never seen anything like this before. And, and as I mentioned before, um, they were kind of, they were too cool for it, some of them, including especially Al Shepard. And if you watch their body language during that very first press conference, Glenn is leaning forward and he's enjoying himself immensely and he's charming the hell out of everybody. And Al Shepard is sort of sitting back, kind of looking around, whispering something to the others. He, he's, he's establishing his distance right away that he's not going to be part of this. And there is a moment really in this press conference, and it's not clear to us what the moment is, but there is a moment somewhere in there where they all recognize that Glenn is changing the rules of engagement and they're not sure they like it. And they're not going to live by it if they can help it. Well, tell us about the other man in your book, the John Kennedy, who's the president, of course, for a new generation. The torch has been passed. The truth is Kennedy wasn't all that interested in space, right? I mean, and yet he becomes the godfather of this uh, of this program. The program existed before he became president, of course. But there's something about his invocation of it that... Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. Transcends what Eisenhower, you know, did, even though he's the one who, you know, started the Mercury program. Tell us a little bit about Kennedy in space and Kennedy and Glenn. You know, it really is one of the great historical ironies that it is John Kennedy who is associated fairly enough with, with the moonshot and, and with the success of that program, because he was really very reluctant, as I said before, to, to commit the country to it, to commit its prestige, to commit its dollars, to commit its scientific expertise. To Kennedy, 
in the late 50s and particularly in 1960 when he runs for president, space is a symbol. That's what his great speechwriter Ted Sorensen said. He said to Kennedy, space was really mostly a symbol. And it was a symbol of the lack of energy and initiative and creativity and boldness that Kennedy saw in the country in the 1950s. There was a sense, and it wasn't just a campaign platform for Kennedy, there really was a sense in the country that it had kind of lost its edge in the years after World War II, that it was enjoying its material splendor a little too much. It was enjoying its color televisions. It was enjoying its, its very large and, and colorful cars. But what it wasn't doing was keeping up with the Soviet Union. And so the incredible achievements of the Soviets in space, beginning, of course, with Sputnik in 1959, 57, but followed in short succession by a whole wave of, of firsts, from sending the first animal into space to, to landing the first unmanned craft, uncrewed craft on the moon, uh, that the Soviets were committing themselves to uh, exploring outer space. And the United States just didn't seem to have the drive to do it. So Kennedy saw a great campaign issue. And he ran on it, among other things, including a missile gap, which didn't really actually exist. But the space gap that he talked about did exist, and everyone could see it. The problem was that Kennedy didn't really have a plan to leapfrog the Soviets in space. He talked a lot about the dangers of being second in space, and he said that to be second in space is to be second in the eyes of the world in science and technology, militarily, and second in the struggle between freedom and totalitarianism. But he didn't have a plan to be first. And when he became president and took the oath of office, it was really not anywhere near the top of his list of concerns. And it remained fairly low on that list until April 1961, when the Soviets surprised the world by sending the first person into space, Yuri Gagarin, he orbits the Earth. And it delivers such, even though the United States had expected it, and Kennedy himself had expected it. No one was prepared for the blow that it dealt to US prestige around the world. And so Kennedy understood immediately that he needed to compete and he needed to compete hard. And the irony of course is Glenn even isn't the first one to orbit the Earth. Gagarin did that on that very first trip. And yet Glenn seems to capture the world's imagination outside our own borders, right? In a way that the Russians didn't. Now maybe that's because we got to see it. Is that, is that what your thought is? I mean, why, why did Glenn transcend the, who cares about an American Boy Scout if you're not in America, but people outside America seem to like him too, right? Well, they absolutely did. I, I mean, it's it's hard to overstate the, the degree to which Glenn was a, was an international celebrity and, and really seemed to Americans and to the rest of the world to represent the best of America. And even when NASA was elevating others, Shepard and Grissom in the, in the flight schedule and putting them ahead of Glenn, NASA understood, uh, exactly uh, the, the appeal of, of John Glenn, and they put him forward to, to speak for the program, which was sort of a bitter irony for him that he was asked to make these appearances, but they didn't give him the first slot. And so the international appeal of, of Glenn, um, uh, his sort of magnetism was a big part of this, but it was also, Peter, as you said, it, it had to do with the contrast between the Soviet program and the US program. The Soviets, managed to send Yuri Gagarin into space and he orbited the earth, but no one saw the, the spacecraft. The Soviets didn't announce that he was going up until he was back safely. And they also didn't, um, uh, they didn't let anybody see the launch. 
And and so all it was in shroud. They didn't even they didn't even reveal actually where the launch pad was. It was it was somewhere in Kazakhstan. Um, but all of this was was surrounded in, in sort of typical Soviet secrecy, whereas the United States had to do all this in in the plain light of, of day. And so when American rockets were exploding on the launch pad, when American rockets were going awry and winding up in the sea instead of in space, that was there for all the world to see. But the flip side of that was when the Americans triumphed and sent Glenn around the world three times in February 62, the rest of the world got to come, come along for that ride as well. And they got to watch it launch and they got to listen to Glenn speaking to mission control from the capsule and they got to see him splash down and they, and they got to participate in the, in the celebration. And a lot of the international commentary focused on this contrast between the two systems. What was, was, was JFK's um, attraction to Glenn? I mean, is it just because he's a good judge of political horseflesh and he saw somebody who he recognized from his own background, right? I mean, because they do latch on to Glenn, not only just as a symbol of America, but even as a Democrat, as a, as a partisan figure, they try to entice into politics. And ultimately, of course, he does get into politics. You know, Kennedy understood, as I said, he understood space as a symbol. He also understood John Glenn as a symbol. And that Glenn, unlike any of the other astronauts, really was able to sort of bear that symbolism on, on his shoulders. The, the story all lined up. Here's a small town boy who became a war hero in World War II in Korea. He was, he was actually, I mean, the other, the, the other fighter jocks were, were great pilots or they wouldn't have gotten picked to be in the space program, but Glenn was actually the most decorated combat veteran of the entire group. So he and Kennedy both had that combat experience in, in World War II. That was something that they shared. Um, but Kennedy also saw in Glenn um, a balance. One of the many amazing things about the Kennedy inaugural, just to focus that for a second, is the balance that it strikes between evoking the, the nation's traditions, its traditional values, and projecting forward into a new era, into the 1960s, into the future. And Kennedy was uh, trying to strike that balance and did it very effectively. John Glenn was someone who did exactly the same thing. John Glenn was traditional in his values. He was conventional in all the kind of comforting ways. And at the same time, he was there in that silver spacesuit speeding toward the future. He was the guy in 1957 who set that speed record, as I mentioned, flying literally faster than a speeding bullet across the United States. And now he was going off into this new frontier, Kennedy's term. And so Glenn was uh, a, a, an avatar, really, of both what had traditionally made uh, Americans feel good about themselves and their country um, and what made them excited and not fearful about the future at a time of, of really great fear. Now, of course, all heroes to some extent are, are, are mythology stories and this is no different. And you, this is not a hagiography. You portray a three-dimensional character complete with flaws. I'm struck by, tell a story about what he does when he doesn't get Alan Shepard's flight, he doesn't get the first flight. It's not a, it's not a pretty picture of him, or at least it's a more complicated one. It is, it's really not Glenn at his best. So I think the, the, the thing to, to first say is that everyone expected John Glenn to fly first. Glenn, as I said, was, was the most famous. He was the, the most decorated pilot of, of the entire group. And it just seemed a given that Glenn was, was gonna go first. The press felt that way. 
and the press adored John Glenn and they were rooting for him and they made no secret about that in the articles. I like how you gestured at me as, as if I was there at the time doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's- uh, you, I've been you, around you, a while, but- <laughs> Neither one of us quite, quite as long as that. Um, and, and so the press was, was in many ways really his kind of rooting section and the public was, was totally behind Glenn. And, and so there was a sense of inevitability about it. And, and Glenn bought into it too. I mean, the thing about these guys, again, they were all at the, the top of their game and they all felt that they were the best pilot in the group. Nobody thought he was in second place. Right. Well, Glenn was no exception. And he really felt that he was gonna be the guy. And he also felt that there was another aspect of this beyond being able to, to do the best runs in the simulator and uh, having the best instincts of the pilot. But it was also this ability to embody America's hopes around the world. And he felt frankly that there was no contest when it came to that. And he felt that was an important part of his job as an astronaut as well. So when the, the head of the, the, the space task group, Bob Gilruth brought the astronauts into his office and said, uh, uh, at the end of uh, beginning of 1961, just before Kennedy's inaugural, and, and he said, I've made my decision and uh, Al Shepard's going to fly first and Gus Grissom is going to fly second. And Glenn, you're going to be back up to both of them. It was it was almost worse that he was the backup than if he had been left out of the rotation. But to be the backup twice. Um, now, as I mentioned before, Shepard was sort of the other leader of the group. So Glenn knew he had real competition and and Shepard, he didn't feel that way about Grissom. So the blow to his ego was like nothing he'd ever suffered in his life. And it was gonna be a public humiliation. Uh, NASA asked them to kind of keep a lid on it for a while. They didn't want to release the, the flight order and, it, and NASA only sort of said, these are the three finalists. Uh, and, and that allowed the press to jump to the conclusion that there are three finalists and John Glenn will be the winner. And this went on for months after he knew that he was not the winner. And he took it very, very hard. He was miserable around the house, as family members said. And, they, uh, and his, his friends found him very difficult to deal with. And he also, I will say, uh, refused to take no for an answer. And so he wrote a letter to Bob Gilruth and said, I think it should be me. And I think that I'm being unfairly punished for holding the others to a higher standard. Uh, they sort of have it in for me, and which was, which was frankly true. And I think you should reconsider. And Gilruth uh, didn't even respond to the letter. So it was a very dark period for Glenn. Tell us about the, uh, uh, the, the flight itself. It didn't actually go quite according to script, did it? Not at all. I mean, and that's one of the things that um, I found so interesting about all this when I really got in. We all know that he got back safely. Um, we all have seen, if we, if we aren't old enough to remember, we've seen the, the footage of the parades and so forth. So we know it comes out okay. But I think what most people don't recognize is that uh, those three orbits, the last two orbits, mission control spent in a, in a total panic, thinking that he was not gonna get back safely. And that was for, for a couple of reasons. One, the less serious of the two reasons was that after a really a flawless first orbit, at the end of, of that first circuit around the earth, Glenn begins to report that the, essentially if it were a car, it's skating out of alignment, the capsule, was skating to the right, drifting to the right, and the automatic thrusters would kick in and bump it back into alignment. And then it would drift, and then the thrust thrusters would kick in again. And it was going on like this and wasting fuel. So Glenn had to take over manual control of the capsule. And frankly, 
he didn't mind doing that. He was a pilot. He wanted to fly this thing. None of them were happy about having to spend most of the time on autopilot. So that, that was not ultimately that dangerous. But what seemed to be incredibly dangerous was that around that same time, a light went on on one of the consoles at Mission Control. We've all seen those pictures of Mission Control with all the flashing lights and all the guys in their white shirts and, and black ties. Well, one of those lights went on that wasn't supposed to go on. And that light said that Glenn's heat shield had actually started to detach in space. And it, it was actually supposed to detach a little bit on its way just before splashdown. After it had come through the atmosphere and the heat shield had done its job by protecting him, it was supposed to detach a little bit to cushion the blow in the water. But it was not supposed to detach in space. And if a little tiny gap opened up between the spacecraft and the heat shield, then Glenn would be incinerated on the way back through the atmosphere. And there seemed to be nothing they could do to protect him from that. So they did a couple things. One is they heatedly debated that question, whether they could save him if the warning light was correct. And the other is they kept Glenn in the dark. They didn't tell him what was going on. They began to ask kind of indirect leading questions like, and this is in the transcript, sounds ridiculous, but they actually said this while he was in space. They said, are you hearing any banging noises? It's not really what you want to hear when you are more than 100 miles above the earth. And so Glenn a couple of times asks why he's being asked these questions and they won't tell him. They think that he's going to panic. And in that they really, they're, they're, under, they're underestimating Glenn, but they're also misunderstanding the thing about these pilots, which is that they don't panic. What they want is they want information and they want control. And they, the, the flight controllers, particularly the flight director, Chris Kraft, felt that mission control was going to figure this out and there was no reason to worry Glenn by telling him a thing. So they asked him a bunch of leading questions that over time <laughs> led him to kind of figure it out for himself. Uh, we're going to open up the questions here. We have one from Lisa Bimani who asks, how did your opinion on Glenn change while writing the book? Uh, well, thanks, Lisa, and thanks, thanks for joining us. Um, uh, I think the thing that I, I didn't appreciate um, about Glenn before I began work on this project was just how, how interesting and, and, and in a way edgy a, a character he was. He was a complex human being as we've been describing. He was as ambitious as the rest of them. He was as tough-minded as the rest of them, maybe tougher um, than, than some of them. And just because he didn't talk about it, just because he didn't sort of have that same swagger that some of the others did. I think that uh, he, he's too often been kind of written off as a, as a Boy Scout, as I said, or a Sunday school teacher. He was both of those things, by the way, but he was a lot more than that. He was also a guy who in Korea, uh, when his commanding officer told him to uh, get out of there when they were uh, flying in and, and strafing a target, he actually circled back, disobeyed orders, and went in again and wound up with a hole in the tail of his jet the size of a basketball. And he actually managed to get back to base and then he posed for, for pictures. There's one in the book of Glenn posing with pictures. This was a, a really tough-minded guy. And I think that that has gotten lost in a lot of the kind of pop culture portrayals of John Glenn. Hmm. Uh, Rachel asks, uh, you mentioned that Glenn was a fighter pilot. How essential do you think that was for these first astronauts? This kind of goes what you were just saying, I think, a little bit. 
Now, not all of them were fighter pilots, but all of them were test pilots. And um, I think both of those skill sets wind up being really important, not just for Glenn, but, but for the astronauts. I mean, on a certain and more obvious level, they were used to flying high performance, high altitude aircraft in dangerous situations. They were used to taking new craft up in the air, very, very high up in the air and testing the limits of, of this new equipment. Uh, and understanding that at some point something was likely to go wrong. These were not safe occupations that, that they had. And they had seen a lot of their colleagues die along the way. So they understood the stakes and yet they had the, the, the cool and the skills to, to push these, these uh, aircraft and ultimately spacecraft to the limit and themselves to the limit. I think for, for combat pilots like John Glenn, there's, a, there's another uh, level of, um, uh, of, of coolness that sets in when you have been in many life-threatening situations and you have made it, as I said, back to base. I talked about that, that hole in the tail of his, of his airplane. Um, but one of the, the stories that really struck me um, when I learned about it was that uh, early in Glenn's time in Korea, he was on a mission along the, the North Korean Chinese border with his commanding officer who was the commanding officer was then shot down and, and Glenn circled for a while and he circled, he knew long enough that he was going to run out of fuel, that he wasn't going to have enough fuel to get back uh, to the base in South Korea. Um, and yet he continued to circle in the hopes of identifying where exactly his, his CO went down. So what Glenn then did was he shot his plane up to an altitude of 40,000 feet and then the engine cut out as he knew that it would the power went out and he glided that plane across the entire span of North Korea. The windshield frosted up in the cockpit because there was no, no power. And he managed to, to get that thing back to base and land it. And the second it landed, he got in another plane and flew back to see if he could find his commanding officer. So that coolness under pressure, that ability to separate yourself from the fact that you might just die is something that was actually really important. Uh, for, for some of these astronauts who found themselves in, in sort of terrifying, uh, what would be to anyone else a terrifying predicament. Amazing. We have a question from Barb Webb who asks, what was Glenn's relationship like with James Webb, who of course was NASA's director? Well, hi, Barb, um, and, and, and thanks for, for uh, raising the, the important question about James Webb, who was such an instrumental figure. And uh, James Webb was appointed by Kennedy as the administrator of NASA, and he inherited a, 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 a civilian space agency that that was um, that had pretty low morale. Uh, the years of being behind the Soviet Union, the years of of seeing their own rockets explode and their own payloads destroyed, uh, had really kind of ground down the, the space agency to such a point that. Um, when Kennedy was elected, uh, even though he was talking uh, big about, um, again, leapfrogging the Soviets in space, there was concern within NASA that he was just going to fold the thing up and allow the Air Force, allow the, the other armed force, uh, the other branches of the armed forces to, to take over the, the space effort. So, so Webb came in, took a job that not very many people wanted, a lot of people had turned down. And he immediately began to, to, to turn things around and was tasked within a, a couple of months of arriving at, at NASA, tasked with this incredible job of somehow getting America um, on the path to the moon. Uh, and so 
in terms of the relationship between uh, Glenn and, 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 and James Webb, they didn't spend a, a ton of time together. The astronauts were kind of in a little bubble of, of training for the mission. And Webb was mostly in Washington managing not only the agency, uh, but also its relationship with the White House and also its relationship with Congress. But certainly Webb was someone who appreciated, uh, again, the, the kind of three-dimensional ability that John Glenn brought to the space program. Uh, John Sanders asks, uh, you described JFK's role in developing the space program. Could you speak to LBJ's role and how it evolved? LBJ is one of the great unsung heroes of the space program. Um, as soon as John Kennedy uh, stood there before the Congress, which was 60 years ago last week, stood before the Congress and said, I believe this, this country should send a man to the moon by the end of the decade and, and bring him back safely. Kennedy owned that program. Um, but that decision was actually driven more by Lyndon Johnson than, than by anybody else. Johnson was always convinced that, that we should go to the moon. It was Johnson after Sputnik in 1957 when Kennedy was showing very little interest in it, when Eisenhower was doing very little to respond to it. It was Johnson who stepped up to seize the mantle of space exploration and trying to catch up with the Soviets. He also saw political opportunity in this uh, without question. And he was quite frank about that with his advisors. Uh, but Johnson was absolutely committed and believed very strongly, as he said many times, that if the Soviets control space, then they will control life here on earth. He understood that this was not just a race, but that this was an existential struggle. And it took others, including Kennedy, a while to come around. But it was Johnson who not only helped to frame the discussion, but it was also Johnson who put the decision in front of Kennedy and had lined up support uh, to essentially force Kennedy's hand. Uh, there really was no other solution at that point after Yuri Gagarin, but to go to the moon. And Johnson made sure of that. Steve Cotton wants to know about his relationship with uh, Glenn's wife, Annie. She says, it's very interesting. Would you tell us about that? Glenn and Annie, uh, John Glenn and, and, and Annie are one of the great love stories, I, I think, of the last century. Th this is a, a couple um, who were together for, for nine decades. And, and how did they manage that? Because they, they first met in a playpen in their little town of, of New Concord. Their families were friends. This is a town of about a thousand people and their families would get together every weekend and, and put the two of them in a playpen. And for Glenn, there was really never anybody else. They, they began to, to date when they were an appropriate age, not two or three years old. When they were teenagers, they began to date and they dated in college and, and, and they got married after, after Pearl Harbor. And um, one of the interesting and really important things to know about Annie Glenn, as many people do, is that she had a severe stutter, a severe and, and really disabling stutter. Um, and Glenn, remarkably seemed not even to notice it. I mean, the stutter was so severe that the family members described the fact that Annie would, would walk into a, a store and, and people would just turn and walk away. Um, or they would talk past her, talk around her. Um, and uh, Glenn acted not only like it was no big deal, but almost like it wasn't happening. Um, and um, he managed to help her way through the world until much later when she got treatment for it as an adult and was able to conquer it um, really bravely and remarkably. Uh, but the two of them had, had an incredible partnership and really always saw it as, as a partnership. Uh, Raymond Termini, Termini, I may be mispronouncing, I apologize, uh, says John Glenn was a 33rd degree Scottish Rite Freeman, which I didn't know. Uh, 
Did he ever discuss how Freemasonry affected his life and his commitment to service? You know, if he did, I'm, I'm not aware of it. Um, I, I think for Glenn, um, the affiliation that was most important to him was um, his uh, membership in the Presbyterian Church. He was very active um, in the church. And as I said before, he taught Sunday school, he delivered sermons. Uh, this was a big part of his identity. New Concord was a very Presbyterian town. You either went to one Presbyterian church or the other Presbyterian church in town in those days. And, um, and that was central to his identity. But I don't actually know. That's an interesting question. I'll, I'll have to look into that. So Glenn doesn't fly again, at least not while he's a young man. Uh, the, the speculation has always been that JFK didn't want him to because he was too valuable a political asset. But you seem to doubt that. Is, what, what, what did your research, where did you come down on that question? It's hard to prove a negative, as they say, but there's really absolutely no evidence that, that Kennedy ever said anything like that to anyone, um, even in passing, and there certainly was no order that, that filtered its way through. It was a rumor, um, and I think uh, ultimately it was a, it was a rumor that um, made Glenn feel a little bit better about the fact that he was really iced out of the flight rotation later. I talked before, at the beginning of this conversation, you asked about the split with the other astronauts. Um, you know, Glenn wasn't ultimately that that popular with his his um, uh, with senior NASA officials either. They didn't like all the the attention that that Glenn got. They thought it was a distraction, and they blamed him for seeking it. Although ultimately, I think the attention sought sought him. The spotlight really sought him. Uh, they felt that Glenn's celebrity uh, colored their decisions in some way. They they felt a little hamstrung when they wanted to pick. Shepard, they were unhappy about the fact that they knew there was going to be huge blowback in the press, as there was. And so there was something about Glenn and also his, his willingness to, to tell it like it, it is. He was not, um, I mean, he was a very good soldier. He was a Marine pilot um, uh, for the most part. I talked before about defying orders, but that wasn't generally his approach. But when it came to his NASA superiors, uh, so-called, he would tell them exactly what he thought. And there was always the concern that he was talking to reporters on the side, although there's not really any evidence of that. So Glenn did not have a lot of supporters in the hierarchy at NASA. And after his uh, triumphal flight, uh, he was edged out of the rotation. And it took a couple of years before he really recognized that this was the case. They didn't tell him that this was the case, but over time he got the message. And uh, in 64, he left the program uh, to run for the first time, not successfully, but to run the first time for the Senate in Ohio. So it takes another 30 years then for him to finally get back to space. Tell us a little bit about how that happens. And tell us about, by the way, I, I love the scene where you quote his son talking about the children's reaction to what he is thinking about doing as a 70-something-year-old man. You know, I, I think one of the things that, that maybe we all underestimate, particularly when there's a successful mission like Glenn's, um, we know he came back okay. And as I said before, we've seen the cheering crowds and we've seen the family in the, in the limo uh, with him in those, in those uh, celebrations, that this was agonizing. Um, I mean, if you, if you can just put yourself in the mind of, of a couple of teenagers and, and Glenn was the oldest of the astronauts. And so his kids were the oldest of the astronaut children. Some of the astronaut children were too young really even to remember um, when their fathers went up in space, but Glenn's kids were, were in high school. And so they were well aware of what was going on and they were, they were incredibly scared. And they even let this out um, uh, from time to time to reporters who were quizzing them. Um, uh, at one point, Lynn said, uh, they asked Lynn, uh, uh, who was 14, they said, 
are you excited about your dad going to space? And she said, yeah, if he gets back alive. So this is what it felt like for them. And um, the sense of relief, uh, we can't even imagine when, when he got back safely. So you fast forward to the late 1990s and here's Glenn having served, uh, he's in his fourth term in the, in the Senate, uh, he's in his seventies and he, he decides quietly at first and then less quietly that he wants to go back into space, that he never got that chance to go back into space. And he begins to lobby Dan Golden, who's the head of NASA, uh, puts in a, a word with President Clinton uh, that he'd like to go to space to, to see um, how an old person reacts to the stresses of space flight. And uh, they had all this data on, on how Glenn reacted the first time around when he was uh, you know, only 41. How's he going to react now in his 70s? And he managed to, to convince everyone. But the hardest, uh, I think, uh, people to convince were his own family. Annie uh, turned on her on her heels and walked away when he first announced it. She ultimately came around to the idea. And, and David was quite frank with me about um, how unhappy he was. And, and he said how he said to his father, how can you put us through this again? It was it was agonizing. But again, um, they came around. They understood that this was what he needed to do, that this was what he was happiest doing. And um, and of course, he came back safely a second time. You have in the book uh, a script that he had written out for the first flight in case he, for his children, in case he did die, I guess, is that something we've never seen before? Is that right? It's never been published before. It was sort of tucked away in a file in his papers at Ohio State, as we were discussing before. And I was, um, uh, you know, you just feel the chills when you, when you read something like this and to, to lift these, these pages of, of yellow legal paper out of this file and, and realize what it was. I knew that, that Glenn had made a couple of recordings for his family um, that he sent to them uh, on the eve of his flight. But I didn't know what the, the they had been mentioned, but, but no one knew what they contained. And what this document was, was a script that he had written himself. There was one for the message to his children and another one, which uh, I was not able to locate for, for his wife, Annie. But the script for his children begins um, by stating exactly what, what would be going on under the circumstances. He says, if you hear this, I've been killed. And there it is in, in his cursive handwriting. He's written this out. He's, he's in isolation at this point at Cape Canaveral just before his flight. And he writes himself this, this long script that contains everything from his meditations on, on life after death, which he very much believed in, to his instructions to his kids how to behave themselves, not how to behave themselves, how to how to behave at a funeral at Arlington National Cemetery where there might not be a body if he was lost in space or if the rocket had blown up. Hmm. So it's a very intimate expression of what was on his mind. Publicly at this point, when Glenn emerged from time to time to, to speak to reporters, he was completely relaxed. He was putting the nation at ease. He was even putting the president at ease. Kennedy called him in and said, is this safe? And he said, absolutely, this is safe. But he understood. He understood exactly how dangerous it was, uh, Glenn. And, and this is an incredibly poignant um, letter. And one of the last things that he says to Annie, Glenn is it. On the, at the moment before his launch, Glenn is strapped into his capsule at the top of this Atlas rocket at Cape Canaveral. And they patch him through to Annie to say goodbye. And the last, one of the last things he says to her is, did you get the, the recordings? And so this is very important to him to, to leave these for his family. And when I asked um, his children recently about these recordings, they didn't know anything about them. Is that right? Uh, 
And uh, whether they were destroyed or simply lost in an attic somewhere, I'm not sure, but they never had to hear them. Um, did you show them the script? I didn't show them the, the script, um, but I did ask them about it. Hmm, interesting. Um, so Paul Anderson asks, would Glenn have had a better chance of winning the Democratic nomination for president if he had run prior to 1984, had the magic of his time as an astronaut worn off by then? And I guess I would sort of add, I mean, like, why wasn't he able to translate that celebrity and popular appeal into, you know, a presidential race? Well, I, it's not I, really subject of your, your book exactly, but no, but it's something White House speechwriter, you, you have a better look at that than most. Well, it's something that, uh, that I've certainly thought about, and it's a really interesting kind of puzzling question. I would say that actually he probably wouldn't have had a, a much better chance if he'd run earlier, because for him, the translation problem, as you described it, Peter, uh, happened uh, really right away. I mean, it's very interesting that, that Glenn, from, again, the first moments on the national stage in 57, and especially in 59, when he becomes an astronaut, people are talking about him, not just as a future politician, but a future president. He just has it. He has that quality, like Kennedy. He had that kind of charisma, that kind of magnetism. And uh, he seemed to touch all the, the right chords uh, at the right moment. And yet, by the time Glenn actually runs for Senate, so I said he ran in 64, but it was a very brief contest for Glenn because actually he, he slipped and fell in a hotel room. He damaged his inner ear so severely that he spent many months essentially unable to walk. So he had to drop out of that race pretty quickly. And he ran again and lost in 1970. And he finally ran in 1974 and, and won. Um, but he had found in that 1970 race that his celebrity just wasn't enough. And that to the credit of Ohio voters, they wanted to know more about what he was going to do in the Senate. They wanted to know about more about what he, what he stood for. And he had not really invested himself enough in, in that set of questions. And so by 1974, he was able to, to make the case, but he was never as effective on the stump as a politician as he was in front of those cameras as an astronaut. Mm. And uh, it's, it's, it's hard to explain. I'm not sure I have an explanation for it. Um, the discipline that he had as a pilot and as an astronaut, that was always apparent in his political career. He was a really well-prepared Senator, Peter, as I'm sure you remember. I mean, John Glenn did his homework, he came to those hearings prepared. He took the job seriously. He was not there to just slap people on the back. He wasn't interested actually in that kind of thing, sometimes to his detriment as a politician. But he did not, he did not thrill to the, the crowds and he did not thrill the crowds. Um, he was elected, as I said, four times to the Senate because he was a very effective Senator, but he didn't have that, that stuff uh, on, the, on the campaign stump. A different kind of right stuff, I suppose. Yeah, and there, of course, I love that picture of him with a younger, uh, Harrier Joe Biden uh, <laughs> back in the day. We have a number of questions trying to bring this forward to today a little bit. I'll, I'll pull some of them together and all together in one sort of question. Vina asks, Lieutenant General William Lickery, the Deputy Chief of Space Ops for the Space Force recently spoke to this council. What takeaways from writing the book would you share with the newest branch of the armed forces? Uh, Raymond Termini asks, what would John Glenn think about the creation of the Space Force? Larry asks, any possibility of President Trump being credited with the Space Force as JFK is credited with the moonshot? And I guess I would sort of sum it up by saying, would actually JFK have wanted there to be a Space Force because he actually didn't want there to be a militarization of space. And so how do we, how do we look at today's, um, and, and, and of course, Trump wants to go back to the moon and Biden has at least kept that going so far eventually Mars. What do we think about today's space program in light of what you've been writing? 
one of the things I describe in the book is, is, is the, the work, the hard work by both Eisenhower and Kennedy to avoid the militarization of space. I mean, Eisenhower created or agreed to the creation of, of NASA in 1958, in part to take that responsibility away from the military. He was uh, afraid uh, of, of carrying the arms race up into the heavens. And he had heard all of these sort of outlandish plans of, of, of the military planners and the defense contractors about what they wanted to do in space. They wanted to build these armed space stations. They wanted space-based fighter jets um, that could engage in battle in outer space. And he didn't like the sound of any of it. He thought it was a waste of money, number one, um, but he also thought that it was incredibly dangerous. And so did Kennedy. And so the success of NASA and the success of a space a program that was dedicated to peaceful purposes, um, that was dedicated to peace, as the Space Act put it, for all mankind, was, was critically important. And also, for the same reason, catching up to the Soviets and leapfrogging the Soviets was going to be critically important because nobody doubted that the Soviets' intentions in space were peaceful. Nobody, nobody believed that their, their purposes in space were, were, were peaceful. And so for the United States to, to be credible, it had to show its technological mastery in space, but it didn't want to provoke an arms race. So it was a delicate thing uh, uh, for, for Kennedy uh, in particular to manage. So fast forwarding to the, the present tense, I think both of them would probably regard it as something of a defeat to see the extent to which space has in fact been, been militarized. Um, but at the same time, I think if Kennedy were confronted with the same set of circumstances that President Biden is right now, with China gaining tremendously in its capabilities in space, with Russia continuing to press forward into space and other nations as well, nations whose purposes are not always peaceful, um, that the United States, as Kennedy concluded, has to compete and has to compete in a way on the terms that are, that are being set today. Uh, the Chinese are looking to go to the moon. Um, China is also building a space station, but China has also really been ramping up what um, the uh, defense analysts call counter space capabilities, which means its ability to disable or destroy the satellite systems on which so much uh, depends here in the United States from our national security to our communications. And so it's a very dangerous threat. And uh, by one means or another, the United States has to be better prepared for it. Two quick questions where we're, as we're coming to an end here. Uh, Hector Marquez notes that, or asks whether you think that, speaking of how we moved away from the military aspect of it, the, the fighter jot approach shifted after Glenn with the new nine. He wonders if that's in part due to Glenn's influence. The idea yeah. that astronauts are representing something about America, not just, you know, fighter jocks. That's a really good question. I think that, and it's a really insightful question. I do think that. While the, uh, the test pilot presence in the program remained very strong, again, because you can't beat that skill set, um, some of the ethic did shift. And there was a, a much greater interest in science, for example, um, as the program continued, and an unembarrassed interest in science, by the way. Um, Glenn and, and Carpenter were made to feel somewhat embarrassed for their interest in doing scientific experiments in space. And, got a lot of ribbing um, uh, and provoked a lot of irritation among the other astronauts. I think some of that starts to, to ebb after, after Glenn and Carpenter go into space. Um, but I think there's also an embrace on the part of NASA and the United States generally, a recognition of the extent to which the astronauts are symbols of the best of America. And there was uh, 
there, there was a need uh, in the United States and the world uh, for, for this set of ideals to, to be represented and embodied. And some, some of the astronauts carried that well, some better than others. And Glenn really, uh, I think, set the program on that path. Well, Jeff, as an author, you're among the best of America. We really appreciate your doing this tonight. Thank you for including me. I want everybody out there to, to make sure to, uh, to purchase this through the World Affairs Council of Dallas and Fort Worth. You get your discount uh, if you do it that way. If you don't want to do it that way and pay full front, uh, fare, I don't think Jeff is going to object to that either. But thank you so much for uh, doing this tonight, Jeff. Good luck with the rest of the book tour. It's a fabulous book, and, and congratulations to you. Thanks now, so much, Peter. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about Glenn or anything else. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. Uh, I could listen to you two for a lot longer. Uh, this was a fascinating conversation. You two do such a good job. So thank you for that. And Peter, you did my job. I was about to remind everyone to buy Jeff's book and you did it. So Pick Always up do it problem. again. No, no problems with that. <laughs> Come back to see us. You can do that anytime. And Jeff, you uh, are wonderful. Thank you both. Uh, it was great to have you. Come back to Thank see you, Liz. everyone. Thanks. Thanks for having me.